Ready to learn why cash flow and compassion are not mutually exclusive? Each week, brand strategist, speaker, and author Maria Ross will introduce you to the trailblazing brands and leaders who embrace empathetic tactics to reap huge rewards. You'll learn about winning teams, brand wins and fails, unforgettable customer experience, and bold leadership decisions fueled by compassion. You'll get the latest trends and research, discover practical ways to infuse more empathy into your work and life, and hear from innovative market leaders who've smashed outdated models and redefined success. Welcome to the Empathy Edge podcast, the show that proves empathy isn't just good for society, it's great for business. Many of us would agree that a more diverse organization creates a more thriving organization. And research has proven that more diverse leadership teams and employee groups are more innovative, creative, perform better, and also make better decisions. But how do you create a more diverse team? How do you catapult diversity within your own organization? Today's guest, Sheila Murphy, is going to shed some light on that topic for us. Sheila is the head of Focus Forward Consulting. After 20 years of successfully litigating and developing and coaching talent in corporate America and law firms, Sheila is pursuing her passion for helping others reach their full potential. Leading with passion and purpose, and you'll be able to tell on our call today, Sheila is CEO and president of Focus Forward Consulting and chief learning and talent officer of Women, W-O-M-N, LLC, which are focused on having lawyers, leaders, and legal organizations achieve their career and business goals. Sheila also continues to support the financial industry in her role as an expert and consultant at Bates Group. She's a member of various boards of directors, and she was also named a most influential Irish woman by the Irish Voice, a leading woman lawyer in New York City by Cranes, New York, a Business 100 honoree by Irish America, and one of 250 inspiring women entrepreneurs by Databird Journal. Sheila is a frequent speaker on litigation and regulatory issues, talent and business development, leadership and diversity. And today she is going to share with you the five pillars of a more diverse environment. What are the vectors and the pillars that you need to address to create more diversity in your organization and your culture? We'll also talk about what the structural barriers and the emotional intelligence barriers are to achieving a more diverse, thriving organization. And of course, throughout, she's going to talk about all the benefits organizations can reap when they have diverse leadership and diverse teams. This is a great episode. I can't wait for you to hear what Sheila has to say. Welcome, Sheila, to the Empathy Edge. Thank you so much for coming and joining us today to talk about diversity and leadership and all things of how to operate and lead more effectively. I'm so thrilled to be here to talk with you on Empathy's Edge. It's such a great program and a great understanding of how we should be operating in this world. I hope so. That's my goal. So you had a very successful and storied legal career as a lawyer and as legal counsel. Talk about what you do now in helping organizations, primarily legal organizations, but also other industries, helping them achieve business goals and really foster talent. 
Well, the interesting thing is, even though I have been trained as a lawyer and I loved doing that aspect of my life, what I found as I was navigating my way up the corporate ladder that I was really impactful at developing talent and especially very diverse teams. Where some people were even struggling to put together diverse teams, I had ones where the people were leaving and going on to both other organizations as well as internally promotions and finding their next roles. And so when I started to think about what I would like to do in my next chapter, I thought about what I enjoy doing and was good at. And so what I have landed on is I coach and consult both um, with professional service representatives in terms of their careers, business development, but I also help organizations with their talent, especially focusing on diversity and what are the things that they can put in place to create a more inclusive and belonging environment. So creating a more inclusive and belonging environment, that work of building more diverse teams, for those of us who might be listening, although if they're listening to this podcast, I doubt they feel this way. Can you explain why that's important and what benefits a company can achieve when they have a more diverse workforce and a more inclusive workplace? Well, first of all, let's start with just the diverse workforce. All the studies that are out there find that businesses that have diverse teams outperform and are more creative than homogeneous teams. So right then and there, you're going to get a return on your investment by making sure that your teams have different points of views and ways of approaching issues and concerns. And then inclusivity is and belonging beyond that. And this affects everyone, whether you're diverse or not diverse, you want to create that atmosphere where people want to be engaged and retained and stay at your organization because you therefore minimize things such as recruitment courses. And when people are engaged and they feel like they belong, they are more effective employees. I think some of the studies show up to 33% more effective if they feel that they are in a place where they belong and feel part of the team. Yeah, absolutely. And so many of the studies show that diversity in leadership actually leads to better outcomes because you have people coming with different perspectives and different experiences, and they can create a much richer, robust decision based on if everybody's thinking the same way, they're going to get caught in the same ruts. Now, I have heard in my career, some people claim, well, can it be diversity if people are just from different backgrounds or different places? What do you say to that? I think that's one part of diversity mm -hmm. that you want people with different points of view. If you're going to be selling in middle America, for example, you probably want to have some people from that area. Or if you're selling down south, some of the terminology may be different. You may not want to hire a white shoe firm from the Northeast. But diversity at a deeper level also includes all the other things that we've been talking about, race, gender, sexual orientation. And all of those things add to the makeup in the culture that really can catapult an organization to get to that next level. And it's not just even at the lower levels that we're talking about. The boards themselves also should be diverse. So the studies are from really all levels of organizations, from entry level to board, having that diverse population with different makeups because your customers are all come from different points of view. And if you're trying to attract them as well as come up with innovative solutions, you want to have a diverse team. You've talked in the past about five pillars of a more diverse environment, which I think is something we should 
step people through because we often hear talk of having a diverse environment and desiring a diverse environment, but what actually makes that happen? What are those five pillars? Well, the five pillars that I talk about in terms of structural ways that you can make a difference in an organization start with looking at unconscious bias, but more unconscious bias on steroids. A lot of organizations put in unconscious bias training and people think that they're in the right spot. But really what you need is that next level where you people start to understand that unconscious bias isn't enough. You have to understand how it impacts things and where people are going. The second pillar is feedback and performance and how we approach that from a neutral perspective. And then the third pillar is work allocation systems. The fourth pillar is mentorship and sponsorship and making that more inclusive. And finally, compensation and promotion and how organizations approach those. So can you dig in and give us actual examples of each of those pillars, though? Because those are a lot of great words. But what do those mean from an action standpoint for people? Okay, let's start with the first pillar, which was unconscious bias training on steroids. Rather than just train individuals to identify and understand what unconscious bias is, you need to train individuals on how it comes up in the workplace. For example, in performance reviews or roundtables, how do we talk about the males versus the females? How do we speak about high potential white men? And then how do we speak about a high potential person of color? Often the person of color is told that this is an opportunity when they're talking about him. When you're talking about the white male, this is something that will show his strengths. So there's some underlining assumptions already. And why it's important to teach everyone to identify how unconscious bias creeps into these systems, because often the people who raise unconscious bias at performance reviews, at feedback sessions, are either women or people of color. And interestingly, when women and people of color raise these issues, they themselves will take a hit on their compensation. But whereas if a white male raises the same issues, it enhances his stature. Interesting. Yeah. So it's very interesting. So you want to have allies and not just people who are impacted groups, underrepresented groups raising these issues. So you want to train everyone to be looking for them and raising them so that people understand how this plays out because unconscious bias raising actually has an unconscious bias impact on those same people. So it's very interesting the whole way that it works. Mm -hmm. And then talk to us about the second pillar. So the second pillar is feedback and the performance review systems. Men and women receive different types of feedback. Men's feedback is much more tied to outcomes and what they need to perform better. When you look at women's feedback and performance reviews, 76% of the comments relate to their communication style. So they are not getting that same impact impactful feedback about how to get to that next business level. Mm -hmm. Men's feedback is much more specific in terms of the steps that they need to take to get to that next level. And then even the language that is used in reviews when organizations sit down and compare them, even where they're receiving the same rating, women's language in the performance reviews is 
about her team leading and how she brought a team. Whereas the guy's review is he brought on the results. He raised the revenues. Mm. He was instrumental in changing an organization or transforming it. And so while the language may not seem important, when those two same individuals are up for promotion and people look at those reviews in that context, because the more impactful language is in the gentleman's review, it is much more likely that he will be tapped for that next opportunity. Interesting. And so, yes. And what's also fascinating is even getting the feedback is a hot water issue in terms of people are uncomfortable giving feedback to people who don't look like them. So whether it's sex or race, underrepresented populations have a harder time getting feedback from people who are different from them. And since most management are white males, this has an adverse impact again on them because unless you get the feedback, you can't make those changes to get to the next level. So it's one of those things that organizations need to look at the words they use in the performance reviews, which is something that they can see, but also train people about how and when they engage in conversations around feedback and helping those persons get to the next level. Well, and I think even making them aware that these are issues is the first step, is that they may not have realized it. But now that they know, they can be more thoughtful when they write reviews. They can be more thoughtful when they give verbal reviews. And it's interesting because I spoke to one gentleman who was in a managerial position about this. And it, all of a sudden, he realized he was doing this. Mm. And like the lights went out. He was like, I thought I was doing the right thing, mentoring both men and women, white people of color. He goes, all of a sudden I realized how and what I was talking to them about was very different. Hmm. And when I gave them feedback, it wasn't the same impact. And so we wonder why people aren't progressing the same. It's they're not getting that same information. Got it. So the first pillar being unconscious bias, second being about performance reviews. What's the third pillar about? The third one is making sure that your assignment systems are neutral. And this has a really a rippling effect through someone's entire career progression. In a lot of professional service organizations, the partner in charge or the director has a lot of leeway on who works on their assignments. And so they find someone they like and they continue to work with that person and not everyone gets the opportunity to work with everybody. And so what this leads to is an adverse impact, again, on these people of color and women. Because again, unconscious bias comes into play where people will tend to want to work with people who look like them, who they feel they have something in common with. There was one study done in England where they only focused on sex, but the company in that case had put in a newer neutral assignment system where the partners really did not have as much say as to who was going to work on a matter. It was really decided by expertise time that was available. And in that case, what happened was employee engagement went up from 19% to 80% Wow! because they felt that the work was fairly allocated. Mm -hmm. And more interestingly, the women had a 25% increase in the number of women who were in the top compensation tier. Wow! So there was a dramatic change 
once the playing field was leveled in terms of the types of work that people were getting. Mm -hmm. And from also the company perspective, the other interesting thing was the utilization rate went from like 16% to 65%. So in an organization or a company where you may be billing out time, that's a dramatic change on revenue. So how do you balance that with this argument of sort of randomizing assignments versus there's a camp that says, no, we need to be giving assignments more to diverse populations and people of color, which means we do need to know who they are. How do you balance that? Because I've heard really good data and research on both sides. What do you think is an organization's way around that? I think by neutralizing the system, everyone's going to get those opportunities. Mm. And I think once people have those opportunities, they're going to prove themselves. If they're getting, again, it goes back to all the steps. If people are aware of unconscious bias and where it comes into, and they're giving them the right feedback so that they can progress in assignments. But if you neutralize assignments and then people have not had past opportunities to do the work they need to do, won't they end up being shut off to the end of the line? I think that it might be our understanding of the word neutralized. Well, I may neutralize, I mean also that everyone's going to get an opportunity to work with everybody. Got it. Everyone's going to get an opportunity to learn this skill or work on this matter. Oh, like a rotation or something. That's it's it's a rotation, mm-hmm. but the system will look more at what you've worked on, what you haven't worked on, and where you are. Got it. As well as some time things. So it's a much more sophisticated algorithm. Mm. And the system that I'm thinking about, which they implemented in England, where they looked at all of these factors mm-hmm. to make sure, because they want people, and this will go to one of the the other pillars who are in underrepresented populations to develop those relationships mm-hmm. with the people who have the power. Mm-hmm. And the only way you can do that really effectively is by working with them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right. So then this way you don't get always the same people that get the same opportunity. Right. There is some pushback, but from what I've heard where people have implemented this, they've gotten 80% buy-in. And again, part of that is because of some of the, it's actually more efficient from the partner standpoint that someone else takes care of all of this and the the increased utilization. Mm -hmm. Especially they said when women come back from leave, they realize that she's being underutilized rather than people not going to her because she's not been around and sort of forgotten about her. She starts getting work quickly. Interesting. And she's back in the fold. Okay. So looking at unconscious bias, giving feedback, assignment systems, what's the fourth pillar? Mentorship and sponsorship. And this is where the assignment system that we talked about also has an impact. Mm -hmm. Again, women and people of color receive different information in their mentoring as well as in their feedback. But you also want mentors and sponsors who are powerful. And those really evolve out of assignments where people get to know you. Now, I did work with one organization where they put in a non-organic sponsorship program, and it had some impact because what they took were the people of high potential, and they made sure that it was a diverse population, and they assigned each of them to a very senior executive. Mm -hmm. And on top of the senior executive who was supposed to shepherd their career, Mm -hmm. they put each of them on a strategic project where they would have the opportunity to shine. So one of the problems we often have with non-organic sponsorship of individuals is the fact that people 
to be an effective sponsor, you have to want to put some of your political capital at play mm -hmm. to help support somebody. And people were hesitant to do it without that real life experience. So in this organization, what they try to do is not only assign the sponsor, but come up with a strategic project that would impact, and this was a global organization, a global initiative mm -hmm. so that the sponsor could see how their strategic thinking was, see how they interact in a multicultural environment and how they thought about execution. Mm -hmm. And I would think that, that I would think also yeah. if they give some incentive for evaluating those mentors, one vector of it is like, how well have your mentees done in the organization? Has that ever happened? Right. And they are tracking it. It hasn't. Uh, this has been in a place about three years. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting. Some of the people have moved around and actually even left the department they were part of to go to sort of a more business oriented organization. Mm -hmm. But it does open up doors. And the interesting thing is why sponsorship is so important is Caucasians are 63 percent more likely to have a sponsor than Blacks or women. Mm. And if you look at what comes out of this is women who are working mothers, if they have a sponsor, they will continue to work, stay in the workforce 85% of the time. If they don't have a sponsor, they'll leave 46% of the time. Mm. So it really does have an impact on organizations' ability to retain and promote diverse talent mm -hmm. by fostering these relationships. Wow. And so, and part of a really, and I've tried to teach this to people in terms of when they lucky enough to have earned a sponsorship is that you need to be there for that sponsor too. This is not, it's not a one way a street. One way, mm -hmm. It's not one way and it's earned. And that is the tough part about sponsorships. But once you have a sponsor, it can really make a tremendous difference in the trajectory of everyone's career. And again, when people of color and women get those relationships, you see the career trajectory for those people versus those without sponsors. And there's probably like a 65% more success rate getting to the next level. Well, it's the same of even just knowing there's someone in your workplace, in your organization that has your back, that's vested in your success, that you know, is there for you, someone you can turn to, there's a high, I would assume that also leads to a higher level of engagement for those people, which means they also can have more opportunities to perform better because they're highly engaged. Right. Well, they feel valued. Mm -hmm. They feel like they belong and they feel that the organization is invested in them. Mm. From a non-organizational point of view, I do tell people who have a very valuable sponsor to cherish it, but also to try to cultivate other potential sponsors as a result of that relationship. Because especially in corporate America, what you'll find is now and then sponsors leave. Mm -hmm. And some people struggle at organizations after their sponsor leaves, and if the sponsor is unable to take them someplace else, or maybe the sponsor retires. So one of the things that I think is always a valuable thing a sponsor can do for you is to start to cultivate other relationships that could be of value to you. Mm, so true. Yeah. You can't just put all your eggs in one basket. <laughs>
Right. And, you know, the other thing that we have to think about right now in terms of mentorship, which I think is interesting in terms of Vice President Pence is on his way, you know, is no longer in office. The Pence rule about mentoring is one of those things about men and women working together, whether or not it's appropriate. And we really need men to act as sponsors and mentors to women. So we have to discourage the Pence rule. And the reason this is important, people are like, well, why not just get a woman mentor who's up the food chain? First of all, there's fewer of those than there are men. And those women are stretched in mentoring so many other women. And so you really need to sort of diversify and have allies act as mentors and sponsors for underrepresented populations. Well, and also you want to get away from that because then that makes it a woman's problem. Like you want it to be everyone, every leaders in the organization's problem and challenge to solve, not just women helping women, right? It's about, no, people in power helping women or minorities or underrepresented populations. And if most of those people in power happen to be white males, they need to jump into the sponsorship game as well. Absolutely. And to be honest, that's where some of the best talent is. Mm -hmm. And so they're smart to be doing it. And those people who feel that they have been vastly ignored in some ways mm-hmm. are really grateful and they're wonderful protégés. Mm-hmm. And they will reap the benefits of also insight from people who are younger than them, how to navigate some of the new things that are coming up. I mean, like I said, sponsorship and mentorship should and can be a two-way street. So we've talked about unconscious bias, we've talked about giving feedback, we've talked about the assignment system, and we've talked about mentorship and sponsorship. The last pillar is around promotion. Let's talk about that one. I would say promotion and compensation. Mm -hmm. Organizations need to make sure that they are, one, in terms of compensation, looking at their metrics and seeing what's going on and kicking the tires if they need to. But the other thing with promotion is they need to make sure that they are putting that diverse slate up. And we've all heard this in the past, but, and it rarely happens. Or you have the feeling that, you know, someone's called upon to be part of a diverse slate, but they're really not a serious candidate. And organizations need to make sure not only that they have a diverse slate, but they are taking that diverse slate seriously. And at least in the legal profession, one thing that they have instituted is the Mansfield rule which is based on the Rooney rule in football, which I don't know if you're aware of, but at one point professional football was having a huge problem in getting coaches who are black. And so what they said is for every coaching position that is open, a third of the candidates who will be interviewed must be black. And what this did over time is change dramatically the makeup of the coaches so that now when you look at NFL coaches on the sidelines, you really see a wide array of colors. And now you're actually starting to see women, you know, Mm -hmm. so it's like even getting broader. Yeah. And so with a lot of organizations in the legal field, both corporate legal departments, as well as law firms have done, has instituted a similar rule called the Mansfield rule based on one of the early women to pass the bar named after her, where again, when you are considering promotion, you need to make sure that it's a third of the people are there and that they're getting that meaningful opportunity for advancement. And slowly 
law firms, organizations are just, they just started it, I would say in the last three to three years, Mm -hmm. but the, the data has been good. Nice. So far in terms of organizations starting, I mean, they, there's a long way to go, mm-hmm. but by just putting in these rules and making sure that everyone has the opportunity and there's no guarantees, this is all merit based, but making sure that it really is a playing field that's open to everybody. That's great. That's phenomenal. And you can just think how to apply that in so many other industries as well, or any situations where you're trying to get more diversity. You know, you you look at the tech fields, you look at um, certain financial services organizations, you know, I think of salespeople, Mm -hmm. you know, I come from the uh, insurance world. And a lot of the financial service professionals are white men. And it's been an issue for decades in terms of how how to transform that into a more diverse workplace, workforce. Yeah. And what do you think about some of the laws in certain states where, uh, for example, you can't reveal your past salary so that everyone can start a new position at an equal salary, meaning you remove the bias of women who started out in their careers at a lower salary than their male counterparts. And that sort of that legacy follows them throughout their career, leaving them at a disadvantage. Do you think that that's something that's important as well? I love it in theory. I'm going to tell you what's happening in practice that drives me crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, In theory, it's right. Uh You know, you should just get paid what the position offers, deserves, right? You know what the yeah, and you know what they paid the last person. You have a sense of what this person's credentials. Just make the offer because what a lot of organizations are doing instead of asking for your past salary, so you're multiplying the effect, Mm -hmm. is they ask for what are you looking for? Mm -hmm. What is the salary you want? So if you're someone who is, let's say you have two candidates, a man and a woman, and the woman is coming in at earning $100,000 today, Mm -hmm. and the guy is earning $150,000, she might say $150,000 as a stretch, and he's going to say $200,000. Mm. And so it sort of does, and women are less comfortable making those asks. Mm-hmm. So even though it seems neutral, it really isn't. Mm. So I would really prefer that we sort of get away from a little of the gamemanship yeah. and really go to what these laws were intended, which is just pay the person, offer the person what the job shouldn't exactly what is fair compensation for that job right and get away from asking and trying to um trying to corner people yeah i mean i think also just transparency why can't we just say this is the job and this is what it pays all right and then if you want a difference (laughs) later on based on performance during a year you can look at that exactly but you know this is the offer and it's based on what we would have offered anybody in, in this role because they're doing the job. I have known people who have performed interim roles and they do not. You know, then they're offered the role and they find out and they've been in the interim role for a long time. Yeah. And then they find out that the person ahead of them got more money and they're like, but I did this role. Right. What's the difference? Right. Unless you're changing the job parameters or the, you know, the scope or the breadth of it, mm-hmm. there is no reason to not pay people the fair amount. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. I mean, in all of this, you hit one of my butt, my butt, this is like a whole issue. I love it. And I'm glad that you said this because I've often wondered how this has worked in practice. You know, I've been working on my own since 2008. So I've been out of the corporate workforce for a while. And I've been wondering how this has, this has worked. Um, And, you know, just the common thread across all of this is the fact that this is all about having empathy, empathy for managing your people, empathy in developing them and leading them by trying to see things from their point of view. And that self-awareness is so important of just understanding that these biases and these issues exist. And nothing drives me crazier than when I hear people go, well, I don't see color. And I don't, you know, I don't, I don't see racism at my organization, or I don't see inequity at my organization. It's like, well, you're not going to see it unless you're the recipient of it. (laughs) And and also if you're not seeing it, Mm -hmm. and I mean this, sincerely, Mm -hmm. you can't be a good manager or leader, in my opinion, unless you understand that people are different and they need different things. Yes. And you need to be able to have open conversations about it. And sometimes these conversations are extremely uncomfortable. Yes. But if you want to help someone develop and reach their full potential, you need to understand where they're coming from and what's important to them. And I'll be honest with you, I never told one of the women who worked with me who is Miss Jamaican that one of our major clients was a black male. Because I felt that if I had said that to her, it was like me saying, oh, I have a black friend and sounded, you know, bad. And then they came up and we had an honest conversation with her why I didn't tell her. And she said to me, you know what, but I need to know those things. And I said, Now that I understand where you're coming from in what is you would like from your manager in terms of this, Mm -hmm. I'm going to get it for you. So, Mm -hmm. and because we talked through a whole bunch of issues, it opened up a door Mm -hmm. and yet now and then tiptoeing around things doesn't help people. Right. And once you understand where they're coming from, you can help them get where they want to go. Right. And it's about listening and asking questions and not making those assumptions. Right. And if you step in it, you step in it. Most people are just, I need to say, they're grateful that you're willing to have the conversation because so many people avoid it. Mm -hmm. And it is important because it does make a difference about how people are viewed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like I said to one gentleman who I worked with, I said, I'm happy to be your mentor to you. He was a black gentleman. I said, don't you think you also need to find someone who's black? Because I don't know how to navigate this organization as a black person. I can give you my best advice and I'm going to do that. Mm-hmm. But do you need to find somebody else mm-hmm. on top of me or, in a, you know, who can help you be, may share in those same experiences that I may be blind to? Mm-hmm. And what was his answer? He actually declined. Mm. He said that he didn't want that. And I always wonder why not. Interesting. Because I actually had two people in mind who I thought would have been very impactful as mentors. Interesting. He, he declined. But I've had other people accept that the gentleman who I, that story was, right. was like, no, I just want to work with you. I well, understand where you're coming from. It's interesting because I've been reading a lot about racism and social justice and really working this year, given everything that happened last year, to up my awareness and up my education about the context and the history of all of these things. And one book I'm reading that's wonderful is called Radical Empathy by Terry Givens. And she is a Black woman youngest of seven kids that went into academia, was one of the first female provosts at one of the universities she worked for. And she talked about the fact that even when she went to college, 
she had to face these decisions about whether she wanted to align herself with the black student community. So it's an interesting conundrum, you know, and I think the same is true for many of us women. Like, do we want to just align ourselves with women in our workplace or do we want to expand our network and be part of the other communities, the other populations? And it sounds like not knowing, but it's interesting because maybe that mentee was about expanding his network and not wanting to just align with a black mentor and feel that he was only getting that perspective. So your perspective as a white woman in that organization was diverse for him. And so maybe that was a value to him to have that diverse perspective. That's an interesting perspective. I hadn't thought about it that way. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm not to, you know, conjecture about this I, person. I was just because I was fabulous. Well, you are fabulous. <laughs> yes. Um, but, you know, it's just interesting that like, I'm going to get a little meta here, but we have this perception of diversity being present because we're actually very egocentric. And so being in a diverse environment to us means everyone's different from us, right? But to someone in another population, they might be, this is not a diverse organization because everyone does look like me. And so it's just interesting when we hear the word diversity and we think of a diverse organization, what is the image that comes to our minds? And I believe the image is obviously anchored in who we are. So for me as a white woman of Italian descent, any workplace that has South American communities or gay communities or African-American communities, for me, it's going to be a diverse environment. But for someone coming into, let's say, an all Hispanic organization, and they are Hispanic, they may perceive it as not a very diverse organization because everyone is Hispanic. <laughs> so you see what I'm saying? Like, it's just interesting when we think of these images. Well, well, I like to think of it more like a quilt. Like, is it, are lots of different mindsets and experiences and populations are a lot of those different ones present. So all of us are benefiting from different points of view. Well, it's interesting you say that because at one point I said to a team that I was leading, mm -hmm. I needed to probably, if I was really wanted diversity, I needed to hire a white male because at that point we didn't have <laughs> totally, one. Totally, totally. I and worked, they, I worked in a marketing team of all women, all white women at one point. And I was like, we really need to get some other people on this team. <laughs> Because if you really believe in diverse thought, then you need that perspective. Yes. And because you, then you also can get into a different type of tunnel vision. And it's really about respect and understanding that each perspective brings something unique to the table yes. that just enriches the entire organization. I love it. I love it. Now, talk to me about the barriers to creating a diverse organization. There's structural barriers and there's emotional intelligence barriers. Explain to our listeners what those are and how we can overcome them. The structural barriers are tough because people don't like change. Let's start with that. Mm -hmm. And also you have some people who grew up and flourished in a certain environment. And so the idea of change is difficult for them, or they feel like they've quote unquote played by the rules. Mm -hmm. And now we're changing the rules on them rather than everyone, all ships rise together. Mm -hmm. And it's trying to sort of explain to people in some sense, what's in it for them. Mm -hmm. Because when an organization is more successful, those benefits trickle down to everybody in terms of bigger compensation and bonus pools, mm -hmm. stock earnings, depending on what type of organization that you're in. But it's starting to have those conversations with people about the benefits and why this is important, but doing it in a way where you don't 
turn people off Mm -hmm. who may be struggling with this Mm -hmm. because you want to bring them on the journey. Because again, those people add value to that, you know, beautiful quilt that you want to create. Mm -hmm. So you want them to come with you on this journey. So you want to have this open dialogue with them so that they will get on board, but you need to listen to them and understand because once you start just pushing at people, I always love the image of I raise my hand and I start talking to you and you raise your hand and you start pushing back. And to me, we just get into this sort of shoving match back and forth. Mm -hmm. And there's really no true agreement. And when you start to change people's hearts and minds, that's where the magic happens, right? That's when you get real change and not check the box change, which has been so ineffective in the past. You want people to sort of feel, and as the last year was painful about, and the things that we saw were horrible in the news, I think seeing that created an emotional connection with people who never had it before. Mm -hmm. And I do think that their minds and hearts started to be open, but now you need to sort of make that connection as to how this can play out, not just in the news, but in the work environment Mm -hmm. and how they can be part of that change for the better. I love that. And I think you need those things. And then you need to talk about the structural change. And remember, cultural change in organizations can take up to 10 years to manifest. Right. So it's really important that there's a commitment by the organization and that you get people, body, mind, and soul to embrace it. Because with that type of long haul investment, you need buy-in. You're never going to get everybody. Mm-hmm but you need to get most people to make it sustainable. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think on the individual level, it's making sure that you tear down your barriers of being able to be vulnerable, being able to trust, being able to be a good listener and to also get very curious about people and their experiences and their diverse viewpoints. There's a lot of work you can do at an individual level to overcome those emotional intelligence barriers. Would you agree? So much work. And I have to say, I'm laughing as you were talking, but that curiosity and listening to me is, first of all, the most important skill that Mm -hmm. any leader can have. Mm -hmm. And so listening to people, and I mean truly listening, not just to what they're saying, but what they're not saying. Mm -hmm. Who's quiet in the room? When do you sort of see them shut down when you look at their faces? What's going on in those moments Mm -hmm. is so critical for a good leader to understand. Because you may think as an organization, you're doing the right thing. But unless people really believe it, or they think that you're like, again, the checkbox mentality, Mm -hmm. you want to show them that you're noticing and appreciating what is and isn't being said in the room. And on top of that, in terms of the empathy level, it really is important to understand because, you know, sometimes we say, well, some people are hesitant to step outside their comfort zone. Some people are this. You don't know why until you listen. Mm -hmm. And you may need to take a different approach in terms of development with people, Mm -hmm. understanding their background and experiences Mm -hmm. and what would be beneficial to them. Mm -hmm. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Sheila, for sharing your insights with us today. We'll put all links in the show notes, but just tell folks really quickly where they can go to learn more about you and your consulting. 
I would send you all to my website, www.focus-forward-consulting.com, which has everything you ever wanted to know about me and probably more. <laughs> and you can also let, follow me on Twitter or LinkedIn, Twitter, Sheila Murphy underscore, and LinkedIn, I'm Sheila Murphy Focus Forward. Great. I look forward to hearing from you all. It'd be great. Yes. Well, thanks again for your time today. And thank you all for listening to this great episode of The Empathy Edge. Sheila gave us some great nuggets, great actions we can take, and most importantly, some great insights for us to be aware of when cultivating diversity and catapulting diversity in our organizations to make them more thriving places to be. Please make sure that if you enjoy The Empathy Edge, you are subscribed, you have rated and reviewed it and shared it with all your friends and neighbors. And until next time, please remember empathy is a competitive advantage. So please take advantage of it. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Empathy Edge. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to share the show with others who want to redefine success and change the game. For more on how empathy makes you and your brand more successful, visit TheEmpathyEdge.com. There, you can download a free guide outlining five business benefits of empathy and a free sample chapter of Maria's book, The Empathy Edge. Until next time, remember that a more empathetic world starts with you and leads to tremendous success.